Thank you, Corey. And as always, the title is Corey's, and as usual, I had to call him up and say, what actually did you want me to talk about? Um, he loves to invite me to this meeting, and I love to come. It's my favorite lung cancer meeting. It is 5 o'clock in the morning, my time. Bear that in mind as you listen to me. And I saw in the elevator on the way down that uh, the little infotainment screen tells me that there is now a blood test that will tell you how tired you are. So uh, Corey has given me 15 minutes for this topic. I have no pertinent disclosures. We're going to talk a little bit about actionable mutations, but no details because my colleagues to follow will tell you all of those. We're going to talk about why you should test and how you should test and a little bit of a suggested approach. So as Corey was alluding to, the landscape of non-small cell lung cancer has clearly changed over the past several years. Uh, when I started in this business, there was barely chemotherapy, and now you have a broad array of uh, targetable treatment options for most patients that now do impact both progression-free and overall survival as well as quality of life. When you talk about mutations, there are a variety that can be detected, and this is important as you look at your detection platform, and it's beyond the scope of my 15 minutes to go into the detection platform, but it's important to know when somebody comes to sell you an assay what it's going to detect, and you need to detect driver mutations, which are those that actually confer oncogene addiction. And by that I mean that the cancer cells are actually dependent on the particular oncogene to survive and grow, and when you turn that turned when you turn that aberrantly expressed oncogene off, the cancer cell dies. These tend to be mutually exclusive, so most patients, when you have found one, you don't necessarily have to try exhaustively to find a second one. They tend not to be in normal host cells. They should confer sensitivity to targeted therapy, and under certain circumstances, they may be prognostic as well. I'm going to go back a few years to the Lung Cancer Mutation Consortium, which looked at archived tumor specimens on adenocarcinomas, about 730-ish of them, and found driver mutations in this somewhat selected population in 466 of them. But in looking at what happened to these patients, we're able to show that patients who were treated for the target actually did better than patients who were treated without knowing about the target or without respect to the target. So that you can see here on the left of your screen are adenocarcinomas on the top in the Caucasian population and in the bottom in the Asian population. You see in the Asian population that the proportion of EGF receptor mutations is significantly increased compared to the Caucasian population, important to know for your pretest probability. But you can see on the right panel that in yellow, the patients who were treated for the target did considerably better. That's more than a year survival advantage compared to patients who had the target but weren't treated with respect to the target, who did just about as well as they would have done if they didn't have a target at all. The targeting mutation profile is changing all the time. So the pie chart on the left is from last year and shows the huge array of t potentially targetable mutations. And I say potentially because you still see a large quarter of KRAS, which is still in the potentially targetable category, although we're working towards that. Uh, EGF receptor mutations, primarily the exon 19 deletions and the L858R, but a number of other mutations are present as well, and we now have op options, obviously, for secondary resistance mutations as well as for exon 20 insertions. And I won't go through the broad array of other drivers there. My colleagues will be talking to you about those. But you can see that Leisha Sequist on the bottom panel on the right and Alice Straw on the top panel have shown us uh, with both afatinib for EGFR mutations and and crizotinib for ALK rearrangements, that treating to the target in a prospective fashion improves outcome compared to chemotherapy. 
So with all of these possibilities of targeting, we need to test so that we can get the right treatment to the right patient. And most of the big societies have updated their guidelines in 2018. I'm not going to go through the ACP and ASCO updated guidelines, but there are the references there for you if you'd like to look at them in detail. The NCCN, as it often does, has a very nice algorithm that you can look at if you're not sure what to do with your patients. The actionable mutations that we look at most commonly are shown on the left of the panel. But the important thing really to note, and I've highlighted in red on the algorithm here, is that the recommendation is to test almost everybody, and especially all adenocarcinomas and any squamous cancers that have characteristics that would make you suspicious of mutations such as young, never smoking, light former smoking, and patients with small tumor biopsy samples, because if the biopsy is small, you may have a mixed histology tumor. And we want to test with a broad molecular profiling pathway, so we don't want to do individual gene analysis much anymore, and I'll show you why if I can make the slide go forward. So to be relevant, you need to be able to have a turnaround time that works for the patient. So most of the time in my world, we think of that as about two weeks. That two weeks can't just be the time it takes to do the test, though. It also has to be the time it takes to get the test scheduled and sent out and uh, in processing. And so you have to kind of count the time that it takes you to get your proceduralist, your interventionalist, or your pulmonologist to get your tissue biopsy done, the time it takes your pathologist to process it and send it to wherever it's going to be tested, because most of these tests are done as send-outs. And you need to be really careful about preserving the tissue that you have, especially if you've done an invasive procedure for a biopsy, because telling the patient that they need another invasive procedure, especially after they've waited three weeks and now been told that they don't have enough tissue to test, is not a fun conversation for anybody. I should say parenthetically that if you have a patient that's too sick to wait, start them on therapy while you wait for the targeted results to come back. We should preserve our tissue. We should be cost-effective, and there are lots of options that I'll go through quickly. This cartoon just shows how we get from DNA to protein, and IHC is obviously the easiest thing to test, but doesn't help us much for mutations these days, although there are some specific IHC tests in the pipeline for EGFR mutations at, at the least, and it's often used as a screen for ALK. But for the most part, on the left of your screen, what we're focusing on now is next-gen sequencing, which gives us a broad platform of anywhere from uh, a few dozen to several hundred genes, which will give you both the actionable mutations that we know about and also tell you what your patients may have uh, as options for clinical trials down the road. To do this successfully, you have to be very good friends with your pathologist. All of the guideline panels recommend that the pathologist is involved in the tissue acquisition to make sure that the tissue is adequate for testing at the time of the procedure. The last thing you want is for your patient to come back when you follow up from the bronchoscopy for which he was sedated and tell him, sorry, we have to do that again because we didn't get enough tissue. And it's also important for the pathologist to be uh, involved in the processing that goes on in the pathology department. So when we put tissue in a block, we put it in a block, it sits in a microtome, somebody gets curls off of it, and there may be several that get lost in the bath before they get um, uh, found, uh, before they get processed. Facing the block is very common. That may lose the tissue that you need to do testing. The reality of life in lung cancer in the United States is that most lung cancer is treated in smaller centers, and most smaller centers don't actually have the next-gen sequencing that you're going to do on site, so most of these are sent out. So they have to be processed quickly. They have to be sent out quickly. 
The pathologist has to look at the tissue because if you've got three cassettes, you want to send the one that has the most tissue to get the testing done. And if necessary, if the tumor nests are sparse and there's a lot of stroma, the pathologist or his or her designee needs to dissect out the tumor cells to send out so that the slices that the reference lab gets to do testing are going to be adequate to find the diagnosis that you need. In the vein of tissue conservation, we have uh, all seen reports that come back of an adenocarcinoma, and then there are about 20 IHC tests that are reported. That takes all the tissue that you needed for next-gen sequencing. It's important to collaborate both with your partners in interventional radiology and pulmonology so that they know what you want, so that they don't get you an FNA when you need a core, and to collaborate with your pathologists so that they know that this is a lung cancer and not just some adenocarcinoma NOS that's on their bench that they have to prove is a lung cancer. So we need to tell the the systems that. We need to make our electronic systems work with us to do that. In my institution, the electronic medical record that we as clinicians use does not talk to the pathology system at all. And so your information cannot go electronically from the sample to the pathologist. So this is an important thing to realize so that you can fix it. In 2018, we mostly want to focus on the multiplex panels because that will tell us all of the information about the actionable genes that we know already and also give us information for uh, trials and testing for future. I stole this shamelessly from uh, World Lung presentation a couple of weeks ago just to give you an example of what we want to get from tissue. So on the upper left, if you have a big biopsy, then that's easy. You can evaluate it. You can send a block. If your institution doesn't like to send out its blocks, you can send a block biopsy, basically a block core. If you have to send slides, you need to send enough of them. They have to be relatively fresh cut, and you have to make sure that there's tumor on all of them. So one handy-dandy trick that my reference pathology folks taught me was do an H&E stain of the first one and the last one in the block that you cut, and then the pathologist, when they get it, knows that there's tumor going all the way through. It needs to be big enough. That's not a problem when you have a big tissue biopsy from a surgical procedure, for example, but as you see on the bottom panel with increasingly smaller biopsies, this becomes more and more important to aggregate your tumor cells together. So we've talked now about diagnosis. Let's talk a little bit about other utilities of biopsies, and that will get us into Corey's next charge for me, which is liquid biopsy. We biopsy at progression to see what to do next. This is the example of EGFR, and you'll hear a lot more of that in just a few minutes. But we know that from first and second generation TKIs, the resistance is often T790M mediated as osimertinib comes more into the first line. Other resistance mechanisms will be more prominent. But you can't decide how to treat unless you know that there's MET amplification or you know that there's a small cell transformation or you know that there's a T790M. So getting a biopsy is important. This is harder than doing it at initial diagnosis often now because the the samples may be smaller. We're following these patients closely. The amount of uh, tissue that's present to get a core biopsy may not be there, and the patient may not be well enough or may not want to undergo another big procedure. So that brings us to liquid biopsy. So what is that? For the most part, we mean blood, although other liquids work too. Uh, And for the most part, we mean cell-free DNA. So all of us have that. In patients that have cancer, a proportion of that is going to be tumor DNA, and the amount of it is variable. It depends. Is there a lot of cancer or a little? Is it shedding a lot? Is it growing rapidly? Is it um, going to be easy to detect? And with the next-gen platforms coming from the tissue into the liquid um, situation, then it's going to be much easier for us to use blood samples for patients who can't have a biopsy. 
There is one which is FDA approved. To the best of my knowledge, there is still only one which is FDA approved, and that's the Cobus assay, which is only for exon 19 and 21 in EGFR and can be used in tissue and in blood. You can see that the sensitivity is relatively low, and this is from the Ensure trial that showed that TKIs were better than chemotherapy. Uh, the specificity, however, is pretty good, 98% in this assay. Looking at a slightly different situation in the R3 trial, and that's actually been presented at this meeting, when looking for T790M, sensitivity pretty low there, but specificity better. And other mechanisms are coming into play. Beaming is complicated, but amplifies the DNA that you want to detect. But next gen is probably really where we're going to go here. A brief word about the Spanish lung liquid versus invasive biopsy program or SLIP trial that was presented in a poster form at uh, World Lung that I bring up just so that you can look at what, what should we be considering when we evaluate these studies. So this was a study on about 170 or so patients which purported to be looking to see whether a next-gen plasma assay would work as well as a tissue biopsy. And I say purported because the study shows us something useful, but perhaps not exactly what it was intended to show us. So this was intended to show that we could do as well with plasma as we do with tissue testing. And I'm not going to focus on this for very long, and I apologize for those of you that are at the back of the room. But the top panel there shows you, and just focus on the Venn diagram-looking thing on the right, that there is good overlap in detection, but that the plasma assay and the tissue assay didn't necessarily detect the same things or the same patients. Why is that? Because the comparator wasn't a prospective next-gen on tissue. The comparator was a standard-of-care test in the institution. And for the most part, it was EGFR and maybe EGFR and ALK. So what we've shown here, well, what they have shown here, is that you can get a test with plasma, but if your plasma tests negative, you still have to do tissue because this is not really a next-gen to next-gen comparison. So where do you do this? You can use ctDNA at initial diagnosis if there's limited tissue, and if you get an answer, you can stick with that answer and treat to it. If you don't get an answer, then you need to do something else, and the something else can be a broader-spectrum plasma assay if you have it there, or it can be a tissue biopsy even though the patient perhaps didn't want to have one. At progression, the ctDNA can identify resistance mutations for EGFR for sure and can uh, identify a number of other mutations as well now with the next-gen platforms and, again, can be considered as a first step. But if you don't get a targetable answer with that first step and if you can get tissue, you should. So the broad recommendations are these. Patients who have non-small cell lung cancer should undergo testing for driver mutations. We like tissue if we can get it. If we can't get tissue, then plasma can be considered. And multiplex testing is better. It preserves tissue and gives you more information. When we do plasma testing, and I didn't have time to get into this, plasma over serum. Plasma is a lot more sensitive than serum. Streck tubes over EDTA tubes. These DNA fragments are not stable in EDTA tubes. If you draw them in EDTA tubes, you have to spin them down and process them immediately, and the techniques count, so that's important to do. The good news is that most of the people that make these assays will send you a kit, and so all you have to do is use the kit, and you will get what you need. If a patient has an on-label targetable mutation, they should be treated with targeted therapy or put on a clinical trial, rebiopsy at progression. If there is an off-label targetable mutation, Put them on trials, but if you can't, you can often get that off-label target for the patient anyway, and it's worth trying to do that. 
Uh, patients, parenthetically, who have both high PDL1 and driver mutations should probably be treated for the driver mutation preferentially. And I'm just going to show you and not talk about them because I've used my last second that Corey has given me. Uh, the um, JTO has published in a supplement in September of this year guidelines for liquid biopsy testing that also include overall guidelines. And I've given you the algorithms both for new diagnosis and uh, app progression. That didn't seem to go anywhere very well. There we go. Uh, the next slide over there that I can't make it go to is, there we go, is recurrence or progression. So please feel free to look at those. And uh, thank you very much, Corey. <laughs>